Here we go. Folks, this is your host Cameron Ivy of Privacy Please, and thank you so much for tuning in each and every week. If this is your first time, welcome to the show. Tell your friends about it if you like it. If you don't, let's just pretend you didn't listen to it. Thanks again for coming in, and we hope you enjoy the show. We're live. I just want to open with the following: those look like real backgrounds. Are those real? You guys have green screens? No, it's real. <laughs> real. All kinds of jelly. All kinds of jelly yes i just promise i'm not gonna pull the guitar out and play for you gary gary doesn't like that what why not (laughs) you just don't you don't like it i know it's the the only reason i agreed to do the podcast (laughs) is to hear you sing it (laughs) see now we're gonna have to do that as our last segment instead of the question no 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 we're not gonna do that (laughs) all right we'll see about we'll we'll see about that All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Privacy Please. I am your host, Cameron Ivey, and with me, as always, my co-host and friend, Mr. Gabe Gums. Gabe, how you doing, man? It's been a long time. I haven't seen you in a while. It's too long, Cam. Why? Why are we going so long, brother? I don't know. You're over the bridge over there in St. Pete. It's just too far. It is kind of far, though. It's that bridge. Yeah. It's the bridge. It's the worst. Um, But we, we do have a special episode for... All of you today, um, we have two guests, uh, co-founders together, and I'm, I'm guessing hopefully they're, they're best friends as well. But uh, Dr. <laughs> Gary M. Schiffman is an economist and CEO of two machine learning companies, uh, Giant Oak and Concealant. And uh, him and Juan C. Zirate, or Zirate, did I say that right? Zirati. Zirati, I'm Zirati. so sorry. Uh, he's the That's co-founder right. of Concealant as well. Both of you gentlemen, thank you so much for, for joining the show. Thanks, Cam. Great, Thanks, great to be here, Cam. Hey, you guys, now you're going to have to realize who, who takes turns first. <laughs> um, but I'm following Gary's lead. Okay. I always do. <laughs> I'm going to say, I'm a is for economists, so... Uh-oh. You shouldn't admit to that, Gabe. Nobody has a fondness for economists. So. Being an economist, so there's that. <laughs> That's true, right? Nobody should invite an economist onto a podcast. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> Well, I don't know what you were thinking. Um, Who knows? Well, since uh, you know we have have two special guests today, we'd we'd love to kick things off like we always do. Um, if uh, Gary, I guess if you're you're going to take the lead here, uh, we'd like to start the show off with with our guests taking uh, taking us through their journey. Uh, you know, however you'd like to explain it, but we'd love to learn a little bit more about you and and how you became um, where you are with these two companies. Yeah, great, Cameron and Gabe. Thanks for uh, inviting us uh, in to, to chat with you. So I am an economist, but let me explain what that means, at least to me. So I'm interested in mathematical modeling of human behavior. Yeah. And that's a way to think about economics. Economics is a science of human behavior. Or if you remember back to that really awful class you had in undergrad about, you know, Econ 101 intro, <laughs> Uh, the textbook says that it's the um, science of individuals making decisions and conditions of scarcity. Mm. So if you take that, you can apply it to anything because anything involves individuals making decisions and conditions of scarcity. Um, I like to think about it as the human condition. 
I mean, we're all born into the same human condition. Doesn't matter if you're rich or poor, uh, doesn't matter your religion, your ethnicity, or actually what point in history that you're born, you're, if you have the same, we all have the same shared human condition. Um, and what I do with that is I think about violence and coercion and corruption and human trafficking and money laundering. And, and this is what I do for a living. This is what I've always done. So think about human decision-making and people who choose to make decisions to do bad and illicit things. Um, and uh, had the great pleasure and honor to become very good friends uh, with Juan Zarate many years ago. And, uh, and Juan has um, been a very prominent leader in the national security community for for a long time. I don't want to give away his age, but it's been a long Let's time. Let's stop that, Dan. <laughs> <laughs> a very long time. You see the gray hair there's on his a, There's beard. a reason for no hair on top and gray in the beard, that's for sure. That's right. <laughs> um, so, so I have, um, I've been in academia and government uh, and industry, and I love innovation. I love um technology innovation and the application of behavioral science, machine learning, artificial intelligence to this uh, craft of finding people engaged in illicit activities. Um, and really there's no better leader in that space than Juan and his, uh, his years plowing those fields uh, from the treasury department and financial crimes and, and follow the money and, uh, to, to being the counterterrorism czar to the president of the United States, um, really just one of the, the great leaders in, uh, in, in, in the world on this topic. And so I've uh, got the chance to, to create and co-found Consilient with Juan. And we've been doing at it. We've been at this for a couple of years now and we are having, we're having a good time. Um, but we also feel like we're uh, doing something that's really transformational and that will, will change the world. We, we didn't come together to do something that was a, a marginal improvement over the status quo. We want to have a radical improvement over the status quo, and that's why we're doing this. Uh, Cam, I'm happy to jump in and I'm always humbled by what Gary says about me. Don't don't believe it, but I appreciate it very much, Gary. Um, <laughs> I, I, have, I absolutely love working with Gary. And uh, the beautiful thing about what we're doing with Concilium, the work Gary and I have done for a number of years together is – we're very much mission oriented. And as he said, we both recognized uh, that in the space of preventing illicit finance, and of course, when you prevent illicit finance, you disable uh, criminal networks, uh, human traffickers, terrorist groups, rogue regimes from having access to the capital they need to reach their strategic end, end game. Um, and our goal has been always to try to find ways to make it harder, costlier, and riskier for the bad guys to raise and move money around the world and to access capital. Um, and we've recognized for a long time, ever, ever since I was at the Treasury Department back in 2001, 2002, that the system as designed uh, was not fulfilling its purpose, right? The, the system is not making it harder, costlier, and riskier for bad guys to use the system. And in fact, we're making it costlier for the good guys. We're making it costlier for the banks the institutions that have to comply with rules that are trying to find suspicious activity, that are trying to know their customers, they're trying to monitor transactions, all the things that we ask uh, the system to do. 
um, frankly, is not enabling uh, the ability to identify risky behavior, bad actors, and those that present systemic risk. And so dating back to 2001, 2002, I was on a quest to try to find something, namely a technology that would enable something quite different, that would allow us to do kind of a leapfrog uh, in terms of the, the system to allow us to begin to identify systemic risk, to allow institutions to share that risk, share those insights, and to share the cost, frankly, and to make the system more efficient, more effective in, in so doing. Um, and I've had the privilege in my jobs, uh, you know, as Assistant Secretary of the Treasury for these issues, um, established the Office of Terrorism and Financial Intelligence, where we saw the huge impact that uh, these laws, these regulations, these tools can have on bad guys' behavior. Uh, when I was at the White House dealing with counterterrorism and Gary was over at Customs, we were working on these issues together. You could see our ability to impact and influence the way bad actors operated by restricting their access to capital. And um, when I left government, I went on a quest for the right technology, the right approach to, to revolutionize the system. And it's exactly what Gary and I um, are doing with the establishment of Consilient, which we've launched now officially over the last couple of years, but really has been a labor of love for Gary and me over the last near decade. Um, and uh, we're incredibly excited about what we're building and I'm sure we're going to get into Cam and Gabe how we how we see this unfolding and what we're actually doing with the technology. It's a fascinating, fascinating story. I, I love this. I love this so much. We're going to have a lot of fun here, um, Gary. I know I told you I love economists. We'll be back to you in a second, though. But one, <laughs> what I'm what, a lawyer, Gabe? by the way, Gabe. I, I'm uh -huh. not sure. Lawyers and economists. <laughs> here we go. Cam's got some good lawyer jokes. I'm sure. I'm already well, Googling them. You know, actually, I think we've yeah, had more we lawyers on this show than anything else, actually, believe it or not. Um, yeah. We were, yeah, we're probably like a solid 30% on, on the lawyers, mostly in the privacy and, 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 uh, and some a little bit more on the security side of things. Um, the human impact, though, because, you know, Gary talked a lot about uh, looking at human behaviors, and, and you're talking about the impact of human lives. Talk to me about the mission. What is the mission statement of Concilium? What, what What's that thing you're setting out to do to change the world in 10, 15, 20 years from now? What will it read on your collective headstones? God willing, it will say that Concilium reshaped the way that the international community prevented financial crime in the international financial system, that we made the system more efficient, we actually drove the system to be more effective, and we gave those that were legitimate actors hoping to prevent financial crime and all of the, uh, the criminality that stems from it from happening, we gave them the principal tool that allowed that evolutionary leap. Mm -hmm. That's what Consilient hopes to do. Um, and, you know, we've got a grand ambition, but Gabe, it, what's fascinating about Consilient is the technology is already upon us to, to begin to do this. Um, and as Gary often likes to say, you know, it's a simple, it's a simple idea, but has huge impact if it gets applied properly. And the idea here is, can you share insights from data uh, across institutions, across enterprises, across data sets, even across borders to understand where risk sits when that data can't be moved, can't be aggregated, or may not be interrogated in the ways that you would want, for example, in a, in a common cloud environment or in a common data lake, um, can you gain the insights you need across 
institutions and borders to determine where risk sits. That's what Consilient does. Um, and it's the first of its, comp- of its type and types of companies that does this. There's no other company that's currently doing this in the financial crime risk management space. And we're trying to now bring this into the market, and we already have, with institutions that are looking for that uplift to not only make their current systems work better, but to begin to discover risks that they hadn't seen before, which is uh, remarkable when you see the technology work in that way. I want to get to that technology in a bit because we've had some folks on in the homomorphic encryption space. You might imagine there's some crossovers between that stuff. I've got a fondness for that technology um, myself. Uh, but a, a bit of a follow-up question. I, as as one of those people whose signals might be in that data set, I've avoided using certain financial products. There's some, some really good ones out there that will, like, you, you, you plug all your banks and credit cards in and it will tell you the world about you. As you might imagine, you know, being security and privacy people, I've avoided those things. How do you do what you've just described without having my data be overly scrutinized in some way where, you know, maybe there's some patterns in my behavior that look nefarious, but really I'm just a wacky dude, you know, now just, just a wacky dude. Gary, you want to take this one? Yeah, yeah there you go. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, happy to, Gabe. And, and Cameron said you were a wacky dude before we got on the call. <laughs> so I think we're, I, I think we've heard about um, so here's, here's the big premise. And by the way, I, uh, I love, uh, Juan's answer to your last question and you understand why I'm so excited to be a part of uh, this initiative with him. Um, uh, nothing, um, you know, nothing boring or mundane about the goals that Juan just articulated. Um, there's this concept that, or there's this assumption that's even in the basis of your question, Gabe, that which is you, you give up privacy in exchange for something, right? Economists talk about trades, right? That's the way economists see the world is it's like, you know, give me that which I want, you shall have this which you want, is, is the way Adam Smith put it, right? So the premise of your question is, is like, I can get all of these apps on my phone, which will make my life so much easier and in exchange they learn all kinds of things about me and I'm not comfortable with that. So I, I kind of agree with you, Gabe. I'm, I'm probably, you know, uh, aligned pretty similarly with you in that respect. And I don't, um, uh, I don't, I don't, uh, sign up for those types of things, um, uh, in, in general. Um, there's a similar assumption that in order to get security, you have to give up privacy as well. Um, and I mean, that's the basis of, you know, the, what the two of you are doing on this podcast. It's, it's, you know, privacy, please. Um, but you know, we're security people too. What if that wasn't true? What if we were at the point where we could increase security and preserve privacy? That's, I mean, that's so cool. That's what we should be working on, right? What if the cost of added security was not is not a cost that you paid for in giving up privacy. Um, so there's several ways to do that. One way to do that is homomorphic encryption is, is nice in that direction. And I, like you, Gabe, am a, I'm a fan of homomorphic encryption and it fits into Consilient and their dozer technology that we've built, right? We're not the homomorphic encryption team, but we, we, we team up 
right? We work with the homomorphic encryption world and we're big fans of that. Um, what we're doing is we're doing federated machine learning. And federated machine learning is a way to basically like solve that problem of do you want security or do you want privacy? With federated machine learning, we have both. We preserve privacy. We, um, we enhance privacy and we enhance security. And that's um, what it has me from a technology perspective. That has me very excited. Let me channel your inner Adam Smith there. Am I giving anything up? What, what is this going to cost me? And I don't just mean dollars and cents, obviously. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a great question, right? Because there are no free lunches, is what you're thinking. There are no free lunches. Not even the free lunch. There are no free lunches. Um, In machine learning, right? That is that, that that is a premise that is very much at the heart of that science, is the no lunch theorem. No free lunch right. theorem. No free lunch theorem, right? Again, uh, um, you know, my, my career is built around this idea of, um, uh, of, of no free lunch. Let me give you a different... Um, uh, a, a different way to think about that, which is there's this other there's this other phrase a little bit less popular, but uh, really well known in economics that uh, you don't find you don't find dollar bills on the sidewalk. Right. You don't find dollar bills on the sidewalk because the first person that sees the dollar bill bends over, picks it up and puts it in their pocket and walks on. Right. So we don't tend to see them on the sidewalk. Right. I think that's where we are right now, where where because of the evolution of technology, there are dollar bills on the sidewalk. We just need to bend down and pick them up, right? So it's not a it's not a free lunch problem. It's technology has enabled us to make step function increases in performance, and we just have to do it, right? So there is no net cost except that we're going to have to give up the old inefficient way of doing things and adopt a new, more efficient way of doing things only enabled by um, federated machine learning, which we can now do, which we couldn't have done five years ago. All right. I appreciate that answer. I'll, 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 I'll turn it over to my co-host with, with one analogy um, or, or one also lesser known uh, idiom from my father. You don't get rich, right checks either. Right. Uh, that's the name of the game there. Um, uh, I don't know if I wanted to jump. Are you wanting me to jump to that one question? Is that what you're talking about? I wasn't, I didn't have any particular questions. Oh, in mind. I, I, I thought you were pitching me a question here. Okay. Airways, and I, I was just trying to be gracious with, with our guest time. And, uh, <laughs> Oh no, that's fair. I, I don't No, Not, we're not going to change now, Gabe. Um, <laughs> what I, I have many questions, but uh, I'd like to start off with this one at least and, and kind of get your take on what comes to mind first. Um, when when you hear the term security and privacy, uh, both of you, what does it mean to you personally? What's the first thing that comes to mind and, and what do you think about it? It's a, it's a deep, good question, Ken. That's why you're getting <laughs> silence from both of us. Um, you know, I, I think like most people, I start from myself, my family, and then think outward. Mm -hmm. Um, so I, I tend to be very jealous with my privacy, 
Uh, so I've never had a Facebook account, never had a LinkedIn account. Been told by everyone under the sun it's not a smart business move, not a smart social media move. Uh, but that hasn't quite mattered to me because uh, some degree of privacy and, and security matters. Um, but I, I'm like Gary in the way he's articulated the consilient value proposition, or at least one of the value propositions, because I do think there's there are ways of thinking about privacy-preserving technologies uh, that enable broader societal security, right? So we start moving out in sort of uh, in, in these rings. I think what's really interesting about the technologies that are coming online, including federated data analytics, which we're committed to, and federated machine learning, is the ability to think differently about how we discover risk without having to expose additional individual uh, information or PII, right? And to Gabe's earlier question, Consilient doesn't have to succeed um, because Gabe and Cam give up more personal data, hmm. right? We, we, are, we are going to succeed because we have uh, implanted Consilient into the data ecosystem that's already there, that's already evolving. To Gary's analogy, leveraging the data, the dollars on the sidewalk that are already there but, but haven't been harvested uh, to, to discover risk. So, you know, I do think there's they're, they're often seen as juxtaposed, um, but I think with these new technologies come on lo- coming online, there's a way to square the circle. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think one of the one of the great challenges we have with with Consilient, frankly, uh, but it's, it's a great it's the great opportunity as well is we have to shatter the orthodoxy. Right. You have to shatter the orthodoxy that says you, you can't have security and privacy or you can't have more of both at the same time. Um, and our proposition is, yes, you can. And oh, by the way, in so doing, you can actually begin to do what we ask the system to do, which is discover systemic risk that matters. Discover the organized criminal groups that are kidnapping little girls to be sex slaves. Let's find the terrorist networks that are. Um, paying suicide bombers to kill innocent civilians. Let's find the North Korean agents that are uh, fronting with bank accounts around the world to do all sorts of nefarious things and counterfeit $100 bills, all the rest. So let's do all that in a more effective, efficient, preventative way. And, oh, by the way, your privacy is even more secure. And we are going to be more secure as an international community or, or a national polity. That's the fascinating part of what we're trying to do. And I think maybe that's a that's the, the macro way of answering your question, Cam. That was great. Yeah, you want to answer that also? Can, can I, let me just follow up on something Juan just said, and, and maybe I can avoid the big profound question and you'll forget you that I, <laughs> I never asked it, that, you never, that I never answered it. Um, so depending on what study you look at, the, 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 the global um, – Financial industry is spending $25 billion or $100 billion a year. A large money center bank is spending $500 million, $750 million a year to find these people engaged in these awful activities that Wong just mentioned. They have systems which generate false positives, false alerts, well over 90%. That means that there are countless people being set for enhanced due diligence, for investigation. Their privacy is being massively encroached upon, and over 90% of them for no good reason. 
Mm-hmm. So we're spending, let's call it a, let's call it a hundred billion dollars just to keep it a round number. We're spending a hundred billion dollars. Over 90% of the people investigated didn't deserve to be investigated, didn't deserve to have their privacy encroached upon. And, and Gabe, you're asking me, well, what's it cost us to improve this? Not much. I mean, mm-hmm. let's, let's, let's not spend less. Let's spend a hundred billion dollars. Let's have all of those people working in this industry investigating 90% true positives and 10% false positives. Let's flip flip it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. We're going to preserve privacy. We're going to make it really hard for people to traffic in persons and traffic in drugs and and finance terrorism. Um, And we're going to do it while enhancing privacy. I think that's the bargain in front of us. Cryptocurrency. How's that, how's that affecting your, your life's work? Well, full disclosure, I've been an advisor to Coinbase since 2014. So I uh, just want the, your listeners to, to know that I've had uh, kind of a front, front row seat to the development of the crypto ecosystem yeah. through the lens of Coinbase. And, and um, so th- my, my bias lies in some of that experience, of course. Um, but cryptocurrency is another dimension of risk. Right. We've crossed the Rubicon of the crypto economy being a part of the legitimate financial system. We're now going through the convulsions of what does that mean? Right. How do we risk manage? Um, How do we account for potential systemic risk? How about all the illicit uses? Um, What are what are the what are the ways of using crypto for positive financial inclusion and other things? So, you know, we've, we've now crossed the Rubicon where before crypto was really this kind of niche technology, kind of this, uh, you know, anarchist, uh, you know, playground uh, of, of anonymity uh, that really has sort of grown up and matured. Uh, but we're still in the early, early days, of course. But what that means is it, it creates challenges law, for law enforcement and regulators to understand where's the risk. We know that in ransomware attacks, obviously predominantly paid in these days in Bitcoin or in other crypto like Monero, um, doesn't mean ransomware didn't happen before with pre-crypto. It did, but it just makes it easier. Uh, the volumes are higher, et cetera. So it's a real challenge. There's no question. But there, there are ways of managing that risk. And I think from our perspective, my perspective is um, the more that you can, you can have data on flows of funds, be it on the open ledger, via it on Fedwire, via um, – other channels where you can identify transactions, individuals, uh, suspect behavior, uh, the better off we're going to be. There are going to be zones in the financial system that are hard to track or hard to find. There's going to be dark corners of the system, whether you're talking about, you know, uh, tax havens or uh, virtual asset service providers that are scofflaws, right? There are going to be these dark corners. But the more that you can figure out where those dark corners are and use the elements of the system to track where there's suspicious behavior, risky behavior, problematic behavior, the better off we're going to be. Crypto is just another domain of risk in that regard that we now have to grapple with. That, that's at least my sensibility. Gary, what do you think? I, I keep muting, uh, the, so I don't mute monster. <laughs> make background noises. Um, yeah, so I agree on... Um, so here's, here's what I think. So if you go 
back to my last comment about how inefficient and how broken the current system is for detecting fraud and crime, financial crime in the fiat currency world. Mm -hmm. We're not giving criminals a whole lot of incentive to go into uh, cryptocurrency, right? They don't need to because we're so bad at finding them in the fiat world. Why go through the extra hassle and effort of going to cryptocurrency? So I don't tend to view cryptocurrency as this dark, spooky, illicit place where all the criminals hang out. Like good people use use good old fashioned fiat currency and criminals use cryptocurrency. There's no reason a crypto a criminal is more likely to use cryptocurrency than anybody than anybody on this call. Because we're not that good at catching financial crime in the in the fiat world. Right. So I think that cryptocurrency is just another alternative to money. I'm excited about it. I think there's going to be cool things that'll happen. And I think that we're going to get good at financial crime detection and money laundering and KYC in the crypto world. And I'm just not losing any sleep over it. I don't know if that makes me contrarian or, or just wrong. I don't know. But I, I, I'm just not that excited about like crime in cryptocurrency like most people mm -hmm. seem to be. They're, go ahead, Juan. Gary, yeah, I was just going to say, Gary, Gary, I'm excited like you. Um, I, I do worry about some of the risks, of course, and I think, you know, the, there's a there's a maturation that's happening. I think, Gabe, one of the interesting things that's happening from a regulatory standpoint and law enforcement standpoint is the more that you have decentralized uh, financial and commercial system, right, sort of the core of the, the DeFi model, the harder it is to regulate with the, with the standard tools that we've used traditionally to regulate, right? Yeah. The, the regulatory system has relied fundamentally on centralized nodes and clearinghouses that can be regulated, monitored, where data can be accessed or interrogated, et cetera. In a, in a decentralized model where you can have peer-to-peer -peer transactions, where you have uh, you know, transactions settling on a blockchain where you have Ethereum, Ethereum uh, providing capabilities for NFTs and all these things, you know, that is very uh, decentralized and frankly disconcerting for the regulators who are used to saying, look, I can regulate this bank, this clearinghouse, this money service business, uh, even this virtual asset service provider. But the moment it's decentralized or disintermediated, it gets much harder uh, and that's really a challenge for the regulators. Again, I think there's a huge opportunity for the technology here. Again, this is where Consilient, I think, plays a key role because the essence of Consilient is you can live with decentralized uh, a decentralized model. You can live in a universe right. where the data doesn't all exist in one place or doesn't clear through one place. In fact, you can have a dynamic risk uh, discovery and management model with a federated machine learning system. So Consilient in many ways is ready-made for a DeFi world. Um, and that's what's really exciting about it. The regulators haven't figured it out yet, to be honest, Cam and Gabe. We've, we've, uh, we've briefed them, many of them around the world, including the United States. They're excited about what we're doing. They're excited about the possibility. But they haven't quite grasped what I just said, which is, in a decentralized financial and commercial world, you need a system that allows you to take advantage of that, not be scared of it. And Consilient, I think, is an answer. Well, let's talk about the problem a little bit more. The, those who know me know I love to, to dwell in problem space. <laughs> what, what What is the cognitive dissonance there? Uh, 
SWIFT, as I understand it, has been around almost 50 years, right? The, the international banking transaction system. You don't get much more decentralized than that, do you? I mean, the SWIFT certainly isn't regulated. I'm stepping, I'm, I'm wading into territory I'm not comfortable to, to uh, express in, with, with any, you know, certainty. But my knowledge of, of such things tells me, um, and my knowledge of these things, by the way, largely comes from my, my existence in, in, in hacker space, black, white, and gray, et cetera. Um, but that has been a decentralized space for the better part of 50 years. What are they, what are they not getting? Yes and no, right? So, so SWIFT, which is the bank messaging consortium based out of Belgium, yeah. is overseen by the G- G10 banks, the central bank governors, um, very much regulated and overseen um, and standardizing the, the bank messaging system, right? So for, for the listeners who don't know, it's like it's like a, uh, a switchboard, right, for the international financial system. They regulate what, what needs to be in the messaging. These comport with national and international requirements around beneficial ownership, um, originator information. Um, this information gets batched. So in some ways, it's a messaging clearinghouse. So you're right that it's in some ways decentralized, but it, it, in some ways it's the height of centralization because it is the, the central messaging artery for that system. Now, everything plugs into it. All the, all the major banks uh, have, have SWIFT codes. And, and uh, if anyone's done a, a wire transfer, you know there's a SWIFT code and you've got to know what the number is, et cetera. Um, but that, that then lends itself to the other nodes of that centralized system. So, you know, a bank in Belgium will transfer to a bank in New York. The message will go through SWIFT. The money will be transferred. It'll, it'll get settled. All that information is being housed in those nodes. If instead you what you have is a is a peer to peer kind of environment where Cam and Gabe and Juan and Gary are interacting, we're settling our accounts, we're transferring money. It doesn't have to go through SWIFT, so there's no message messaging going there. It doesn't have to go through a bank. It starts then to create challenges of well, how do we know this is not for illicit purposes? How do we know that uh, Cam Ivy isn't the guy on the OFAC list and isn't sanctioned because he's a terrorist? Or how do we know that this isn't some money laundering scheme where people are just trying to hide their hand, right? So those issues arise, um, and that's where you get the regulatory tension and question. Now, again, this requires then you to view these data sets and these, these other nodes as part of a solution, and then the analytics can run in and through all the way to edge computing as then a way of discovering where there's risk or problematic behavior. Um, but that's, it's a challenge. It's a challenge, Gabe. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm going to throw one more on the table because, I, Juan, I heard you mention the $100 bill, and I suspect it's not an accident. It is, it is the vehicle of, of many a launderer all over the planet, right? You can uh, – it's the, the, the U.S. $100 bill in particular – it is a, a very good vehicle for moving large sums of quantity physically, but it's also a very bad vehicle for that too, right? It's 2021. This question is going to sound naive as hell as somebody who does not live my my 2021 life, right? Like, I don't carry cash. I haven't in a long time. Why does that vehicle still exist? Well, it's a, it's a great question. I, You know, it goes to a broader question as to whether or not we need cash at all, right? We're moving toward more of a cashless society. But the reality is, 
you know, we've had various gradations of and denominations of, of the U.S. dollar over time. Um, the $100 bill has been seen as, a, as an important feature of those denominations. And frankly, in countries around the world where the dollar is seen as the ultimate safe haven and, and not just having a dollar in your bank account, because you see what happens in countries like Lebanon, where the currency is devalued and the central bank uh, isn't willing to convert and the reserves drop. Um, having cash actually matters. Um, and, you know, the, the, the largest jurisdiction outside the United States that has U.S. currency is Russia. Uh, and that's for a reason. Right. And the hundred dollar bill is a store of value uh, for many around the world. So I, I think there's there's a lot to that. But I think that you, you raise a good question. In fact, um, you know, the, the, the euro notes um, have come under scrutiny because they have incredibly high value, uh, y- you know, euro value. And the, the point is, look, that can be used by counterfeiters as well as traffickers and others uh, to move more more money uh, in less space. Frankly, it's a, it's a matter of physics, right? You can put more of the high value bills into a suitcase uh, than you know than a dollar bill or a one euro note. You also, as I understand it, cannot find bags of cash on the sidewalk either. It's it's weird. It's hard, hard hard to do. <laughs> All yeah. the time, every day. Not- I haven't found any. I just follow yeah. Gary around, just sort of pick up his ideas. <laughs> so this, I'm going to pick it up first, though. Yeah, that's true. That's true. This should easily roll into to our ridiculous question. Or actually, no, I think it's a legit question. When you're when you started uh, Concilient, let's just imagine that uh, Juan and Gary, you both only had a hundred dollar budget to put into your privacy program, where would you start? So I think that what we're doing is inseparable from privacy. I think that the whole premise of our company is, um, is that security and privacy are the same thing in this instance. So as opposed to maybe things that I would have done five or 10 years ago where you'd say, okay, I want to do this and I want to have a privacy program. And, you know, where would I in- invest that money? You know, I would, you know, I would use encryption and I would, you know, do different things like that. Um, what we're doing now is privacy enhancing from the ground up because here's, here's the, here's the pitch. So let's say that uh, uh, we're calling on Gabe's bank and we want Gabe to join our collective here in the consilient world and uh, and use Dozer. I would say, Gabe, I'm gonna I'm gonna give you access to the best uh, library of algorithms in the world, and you get the algorithm, and you give the algorithm back to me, but you never have to move your data, ever. Your data stays wherever you want to put it. If you want it in the cloud, you, it's in the cloud. If you want it in the servers in the basement of the bank, it's in the servers of the basement. Juan and I and the team at Consilient are absolutely agnostic to where you keep your data. We're just saying, come join our community of like-minded folks who want to raise the bar on detecting crime. And we're going to share algorithms with you. And 
you're going to, we're going to give you an algorithm and you're going to give it back. Or we're going to give you access to the library. And you're going to like, like check them out. Like you're checking out um, books from a library or you're downloading uh, videos from Netflix, mm-hmm. right? You're just going to give it back when you're done. Uh, and that's it. So this is by, by its very nature, privacy preserving and in fact, privacy enhancing because of the false positives problem I talked about before, where by using these algorithms, your investigators in Gabe's bank are not actually investigating lots of people for no good reason. Is it, is it safe to say that your technology answers questions without exposing, again, the, the homomorphic, right? The use case. The reason I'm asking that is because you, you mentioned giving it back and maybe you were just using that language kind of to make it accessible to our audience. But again, my inner hacker here is things like, if you're going to give me data and you expect it back, I'm like, no, I'm not. These are, these are ones and zeros. I'm, I keep every one and zero that I get. No, no, I'm, I am not giving you data and I'm not asking you for data. I'm giving you an algorithm. Okay. I am not, I, I am never going to see name, address, phone number. I'm not going to see any of that ever. Now, the only way in which I would ever like, so Cameron's bank and Gabe's bank think they might be banking the same customer. Homomorphic encryption solves that for us. Right. Right. So we're going to get there, but but right now there's no, there's no, and that's when like a name, address, a date of birth leaves the bank in an encrypted format, right? That's what you keep talking about. We're not taking anything out of the bank. No name, address, phone number ever leaves the bank with us. Very nice. And Gabe, the, the, one of the ways I think about this, and, and this is why I think concealing coming out of the market now is, is uh, really good timing and why Gary, Gary and I are so excited about it is there's really three data elements here that we're solving for at once. One is the data privacy issue, which Gary just described, right? We're not, we're not, we're not hunting out for more PII. We don't want anybody to send us, uh, you know, the bank account information, none of that, right? So as a matter of privacy, this, this proposition's really interesting. Uh, In terms of data security, it's really important as well, because we're not asking for data to be moved. Data can reside in C2. Uh, you can keep it and secure it any way you want, right? The, the algorithm has to run through it, has to be able to interrogate it, but that's it, right? We're not asking for the data to move, for you to kind of uh, transform it in some way and send it to us, right? So there's the data security element. The other thing that's really interesting from a regulatory and sovereignty perspective is there's more and more data localization laws that are coming online uh, where countries are demanding that data reside in C2, right? This is the big challenge with China and the big challenge with, with other countries. And so, um, again, we're not, we're not suggesting a change in, in national laws where you've got to change anything that says, look, you know, you've got to move this data set or these racks across borders. No, no, no. The, what's moving is the algorithm, not the data. And so what's fascinating here with the technology and our approach is not only are we trying to solve the efficiency and the effectiveness problem on financial crime, we're solving the data privacy, security, and localization issues all at once. We're cutting the Gordian knot. Let me just add, so I want to bring these two big ideas together. So you had this conversation uh, about cryptocurrency and decentralization. Okay. Um, 
I have written about the evolution of financial crime and the way I see financial crime or just crime in general today is I think, I think we're seeing the, 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 the large scale amateurization of crime. Um, I, I wrote about, um, about ransomware in the wall street journal recently. And I said, the reason we're seeing this explosion of ransomware is because a bunch of idiots are getting into the market for ransomware and they're getting away with it. Right. We're seeing the dumbing down of of global financial crime. That's because technology is enabling this kind of mass dispersion of technologies. I can have I can have a cloud architecture in Belarus and I can have hackers in Russia and I can I've got this global marketplace for good things and for bad things. Okay, in that world, you want to detect crime. You can't say, "Okay, now everybody move your data over here so I could look for financial crime. Right. You can't move the data. We're moving to a decentralized world. We need to be able to move the analytics. And that's what consilient is. That's what Dozer is. It's federated analytics because that's just the nature of the world. It would be foolish to think it's going to be anything different anytime soon. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. It's simple. I, I appreciate the, uh, the the dumbing down of, of crime, but I worry that that description might actually um, kind of gloss over the fact that the affiliate model that uh, ransomware criminals are rolling out is, in my opinion, I, I think they've actually gotten quite smarter about how they they perpetrate this crime. Yeah. So you're you're just picking a fight between Juan and Gary right now because Here we Juan go. Here totally, we go. I totally he, absolutely, he absolutely disagrees with me and agrees with you, Gabe. So Cameron, I'm counting on you here, buddy. Um, <laughs> we'll make it even. We'll make it even. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So they, there are very smart people, Gabe. I'm not going to mention any names who disagree with me, and we'll just leave it at that. Gabe, <laughs> just to, to feed off, not, not reference anybody else, but it, just to hear what you said. I think you're right, but in fairness to my friend, I think the point is there's a broader marketplace and spectrum, right, and opportunity. The, the barrier to entry is incredibly low. Yeah. Now, it doesn't mean that on the far end of the spectrum there isn't huge innovation, organization, even state actor involvement, yeah. as we know, right? So we, we've seen, for example, in our analysis, we've seen, uh, you know, fake call centers being established by some of these groups, right? So you, you do the kind of uh, authentication by doing a call center thing. You know, you've got the bad guys running the call center. Uh, we, we know that there's a lot of social engineering that's happening uh, with, with a lot of this. And we know that there's ransomware as a service that's developed. So, you're absolutely right. I, I agree with you wholeheartedly that there's a there's an entire sort of cottage industry that is developing and is servicing a more sophisticated class. But I think Dr. Schiffman's point uh, is right too in that in that you, you have you have a lower end of the spectrum that is lowering the barrier to entry and making it easier for low scale criminals to have higher impact yeah. and higher profits. You know he's in trouble. He stops calling you Gary. <laughs> that's right that's right you know you're in trouble when he calls me dr shiffman i was just like uh-oh i really screwed up this time <laughs> hey, let's shift gears a little bit and and go back to what juan said uh you started mentioning regulatory um things and i, I kind of want to touch on that i have two questions in one um so for both of you wh where do you see data security and privacy going 
in the next year or two. So what, what do you think your predictions are going to be for, for 2022 when it comes to uh, regulatory compliance and, you know, security and privacy as a whole? And then my second question to follow up is where do you want it to go? Or hope that it goes? I'm, I'm happy to take a crack at this, Gary. See what you think of what I say. Um, and the macro level, I think it's fairly obvious. I'm going to be Dr. Obvious here. Uh, there's going to be continued massive regulatory scrutiny across the world mm-hmm. on major tech providers and those that hold data, right? And that will take different forms. You've seen this in China where it's part of their crackdown, frankly, on the, the private sector uh, and, and the major companies and the uh, – and the moguls, frankly, and their their willingness, the the Chinese Communist Party's willingness uh, to begin to uh, discipline, if you will, the bigger actors uh, and get access to their data. And so, uh, in Europe, obviously, it it takes the form of looking at how data is used, largely by American tech companies, how GDPR is being implemented. Uh, so, I think you're going to see more of that, and certainly from the U.S. Congress. You're going to continue to see the scrutiny over the major U.S. tech companies that have control of more and more data to the point where I think you're going to have not just acceleration of the debate around uh, using antitrust to break up some of these tech companies, but really a lot of pressure to uh, scrutinize further what the tech companies are doing with the data and what they're allowed to do further with it. Uh, I think you've seen Facebook come under a lot of scrutiny, for example, with uh, the use of its platform for financial purposes. Mm-hmm. So I think you're going to see more and more of that um, with a recognition that, um, secondly, and this is a trend, uh, customers and individuals have to have more control of their identity and their data. Uh, and so I think you're going to see more innovation there, more technologies emerge, uh, and and more willingness of um, uh, of institutions to invest in technologies and capabilities that give uh, control of data, control of security uh, to users and customers. Mm. So, so I'll agree. I'll, I'll um, uh, at the risk of saying something very similar, just at different words. I, I think I would emphasize the the market will respond. I don't want to rely on the government to respond, although the government will. So I think regulations will change, and I think the regulations will mostly impact big tech. Um, if you think about, again, the, the, the zeitgeist of this generation versus a generation ago, the, um, you know, the evil used to be the big banks. Now it's big tech. Now mm-hmm. it's, um, you know, Facebook and, uh, and Amazon and kind of they're the current villain in the, in the American zeitgeist. And I think regulation is going to impact them the most. And, but I actually look to technology and innovation to fill most of the requirements. And that is, um, uh, I own my personal data, you own your personal data, I own my shopping history, you own your shopping history. And if if Amazon wants to monetize my shopping history, they should pay me for it, right? And I think, Cameron, I liked the second part of your question best. So A, what I think is gonna happen, I think regulation of, of, of big technology is gonna happen. What do I want to happen? I want a market for my data to be recognized where I can monetize my data or keep my data private and not monetize it. And that's up to me. It's not up to anybody else. 
I'm with you. We've had this conversation in particular probably half a dozen times on the show, including we've had two folks on who started organizations that do exactly that, help you monetize that. I will, I will repeat what I've said in those shows. I am very, very concerned that the inequalities that exist in the physical world will just continue to perpetuate themselves in that space. Gary yeah. Shipman's data will arguably be worth more than, you know, some random person in, in uh, South America who earns 13 cents a day kind of thing, right? That being said, they equally exhibit behaviors that Facebook would just as soon love to monetize, right? Um, I, I worry about the, the breaking down the inequities of that model in particular, and uh, I'm equally worried that we're going to outpace that. We'll solve for the we can monetize our data, but we'll, we'll only perpetuate in an equities problem, which, by the way, will only further perpetuate the crime problem as well, too, right? Like, if I know that you can get $10 for yours and I'm getting 13 cents for mine, I might be inclined to turn to digital crime. I might be. So I, I, I can't solve all of that for you, Gabe, but I will just tell you directionally, if we can establish ownership property rights and have transparency, we will be way better off than where we are today. Cannot disagree with that at all. We have to take, we have to take those steps. I agree. I yep. agree. Awesome. Well, is there anything else that uh, you guys would like to bring up that we didn't get to bring up? I know Gary, you wanted to uh, promote the shirt you're wearing, the foundation. Yeah. Thanks. I'm, I'm, I'm wearing the, um, uh, one of my shirts from the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. It's one of my favorite charities. And uh, whenever I get a chance to help uh, promote them, I do. So thanks for pointing that out, Cameron. That's that's the shirt I'm wearing today. Absolutely. We'll make, sure organization. We tag, we'll make sure we tag them in the show notes and when we put this on social as well. It's a great organization. Thank you for bringing some great. additional yeah. uh, attention to them. Great. Great. Thanks, guys. Appreciate that. Absolutely. Uh, so let's go on to our last round here. Some fun questions. Uh, some deep. Those, those weren't fun. Wait. Uh, sorry. <laughs> some deep, deep, dark secrets. That's the irony here of privacy, please. <laughs> um, so, Gary, what's your bank account number? I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Um, I'd like to know it, too. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, but seriously, uh, we, we're really curious to know both your situations when it comes to your TP situation at home. Um, how, how do you guys put the toilet paper on the roll? Is it do you grab it from the top or do you grab it from the bottom? You have to. It has to unroll from the top over the top. Yes, yeah, I, 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 I agree. Uh, has to. Otherwise, <laughs> yeah. too messy. Uh, I was worried yeah. for a second, Cameron, that we were going to cause an irreparable rift in this, this long <laughs> friendship. So I'm very happy. <laughs> very happy that you boys. So I don't want to be responsible for that. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. Um, all right. So uh, next question would be, what is what has been your favorite um, or new snack that you've gone to over these? Uh, I guess it's already been two years of the pandemic. During the plague, the plague. Yes. Any any new snacks I'll, or something you've increased? Yeah, I'll, I'll answer that because I I started I started eating like Chex Mix, yeah. like different kinds of Chex mixes as a kind of a snack when watching movies or that was what I was eating it this weekend. So I hadn't really done that before the pandemic, and I'm doing it now. Costco trips. Yep. Uh, pretzels extra dark. Oh. Um, 
And I find that throughout the day, I always like, you know, every two hours or something, I'm walking through the kitchen and grabbing pretzels, extra dark. Pretzels. Are you saying, are they covered That's in new. dark chocolate? No, they bake just burnt. Like they bake them. Yeah. yeah. That's a thing. Yeah. They're, 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 they're cooked until they're extra dark. And so they're like charred. Yeah, I didn't know really that they, they made those or sold those. Or, or do you, Gary gets yeah. very fancy food. They used to get rid of those, and then they realized that the Garys of the world exist and they could mine. Yeah, That's, right. That's right. That's right. We're a small minority, but we exist. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So I got a thanker for you. Um, this this will be interesting to hear both your views. Um how would you explain the color yellow to a blind person? Oh my God, Ken. <laughs> uh, it's, it's, it looks the way butter tastes. Mm. I like that. I like butter. It, but, it looks like rubber band, a uh, uh, rubber band hitting your skin feels. Oh, Ooh. interesting. Wow. That's the first time we've had that butter. And then, and then your answer. That's see, okay. everybody's mind thinks differently. I love it. Okay. Um, the judges will have also accepted pound f f f f zero zero. The hex code will would equally have. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, are, yeah, I'm still going back to your original question. I, I was still trying to figure out what what TP meant. I oh, toilet paper, actual TP. Oh yeah, I thought it was some technical term. I was like. <laughs> I was worried I didn't know. I'm sorry. I, I should I should apologize because we're we're talking in tech here and that's tech yeah, is all about acronyms. I'm like, oh my god. Some new some new term Gary didn't teach me. Yeah, it's a, it's the it's the transaction processing system of a bank. There, there, oh, there we go, there we go. Two ply. Um all right, so uh let's let's pretend that um someone's gonna make a movie about your life. Um who who is gonna star you? your character and, and what type of movie is it going to be? Oh, geez. It's going to be like a, That's... like a action movie with both of you. And one of these Ryan Reynolds and the others, <laughs> the rock Dwayne Johnson and your. <laughs> like the rock. <laughs> I don't know. I don't, I mean, both of them, both of them are genius guru businessmen making some. Yeah, I don't know. What's worth? I'll take the wrong. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, um, so Bruce Willis Ooh. plays me. I yeah. see it. Yeah. Ooh, I like that. I like that. Yeah. Are we talking? Yeah. Are we talking like um, diehard Bruce Willis or? Uh... That's what I'm thinking. Okay. I'm, it's like the young diehard Bruce Willis, okay. right? And I think that's what it is. I think it's diehard, right? Which is, you know, there's there's people trying to commit a massive financial crime. Ooh. Of course. You're trying and, to get Christmas. And, <laughs> and, and I'm, dude, I'm just trying to, to see my, my kids for Christmas. That's all. Okay. And there's these people trying to steal bearer bonds, and 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 I'm not going to let it happen. <laughs> I don't know what you're going to be, but I watch that. <laughs> there's, there's been Plot. simpler plots that uh, have no, been. No, I think we leave it at that. I think that's a great <laughs> Well, we, I'm happy to play a bit role. We got to at least hear your opinion of what, who you think would play you, though. What actor? Uh, like, you want my aspiration or the reality? 
It's whatever you want. Whatever this you is, want. This is I, 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 would, I would love for Tom Cruise to play me. But, okay. You know, that's, oh, that's, yeah. That's pure. I see that. That's fanciful. I do think I'm taller than Tom Cruise, so I got to be that's honest. That's not hard. So that's good. Like, a little. <laughs> that's well, part of it is my wife likes Tom Cruise. She's always liked Tom Cruise, and I think she would love me more if Tom Cruise played me in a movie. Well, it's even easier, too, because you don't have to use any kind of platforms or, you know, stand on something to look taller in the films like yeah. I'm sure they do. I'll, I'll give you an alternative, and this, this is a little fun fact for, for you. Um, I would go with Matt Damon, um, but yeah. that is because he was a classmate of mine uh, at Harvard. Oh, wow. So he, he lived uh, – he actually lived in the same house that we did, um, and he was early days of his acting career, but it was already clear he was going to be a star. Oh. And uh that's awesome. So, so Matt, Matt and I are classmates. Um, although I don't, I saw him the other, I saw him the other day, a few years ago, uh, when he was doing one of the Born Identity films here in DC. I went out to see him, but uh, that's super he's cool. Such a nice guy, actually. He pretended to remember who I was. Uh, <laughs> what I so clearly remember who to, he was. He'd agree to play the part. I think that'd be great. Yeah, I would. I, that's that's more realistic, actually, just as a matter of. Getting into yeah. uh, get him on the phone. Get his agent on the phone. Let's do Let's this. Let's do it. Let's do it. I uh, I'll tell him one of my favorite movies is um, <clears throat> Rounders. That's actually one of my favorite movies. If you go oh, back, yeah. it's, it's a classic with Edward 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 Norton classic. when he was Edward Norton. I, I don't know what happened to him, but um, Goodwill Hunting is a uh, one of the classics. You're gonna hate me, but I have not seen it. And I still need to. It's on my list. Cam, Cam, you need to see it this weekend. Okay, because Robin Williams is one of my favorites, and uh, oh my god, it's just yeah. one of those films I just didn't get a chance to to watch. And I, I've heard our, good. Our friend is wicked smart. <laughs> wicked smart. Cam, you need to watch it. I will. I'm 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 gonna put a. Uh, it's something that's gonna be done very very soon because I've I've been putting it off. But um, great movie. Since, since we're on the topic of movies. And it's coming close to Christmas. And you can't use Die Hard, Gary. I know people love the... No, it's my favorite Christmas movie. Well, I, That's I'm going to have answer. to disagree. I'm done. I'm done. Because just, because, it. just because it's during Christmas. Nope. <laughs> um, what, what is your favorite Christmas movie? And, and what are the reasons why that, that movie is your favorite? Die Hard's my Chris, favorite Christmas movie. There's three of them. The first one. Only the first okay. one. Very, yeah. very good. Uh, fun fact, I actually saw part two being filmed in New York City in Central Park. I was coming out of the subway and that, that cab chase scene was taken off. And I was like, whoa, what's happening here? It's like, oh, it's a movie. Is that the one with Samuel L? That's the one. Yep. That's a good one. That's a great one. Juan, your turn. Cam, I, I've got kids, uh, so my opinions evolved over time. I, I'm I'm uh, – I'll, I'll use this term intentionally. Die Hard, um, It's a Wonderful Life fan. Uh, oh, wow. I think okay. That's such a classic movie. But we, we, the family loves Elf. We're, we're huge Elf yeah. fans. Um, he's an angry Elf. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, <laughs> and, uh, oh, it's a classic. But Christmas Story is really good, too. Uh, but So I, we go in waves. But I, right now, Elf is still the family favorite. And. Uh, you know, some great classics. So, I, oh. I, you guys are younglings, so you probably haven't seen things like uh, Bells of St. Mary's and mm -hmm. uh, Holiday Inn and others, um, Miracle on 34th Street. You know, these these classics mm -hmm. from the uh, the 40s and 50s. Those are some great films. What about Scrooge? That's a good one, too. Uh, that's all right. That's I, all I will right. say, okay. um, I've never been a fan of A Wonderful Life. or well, No, no, I'm sorry. Uh, uh, Christmas Story. 
Only because growing up, I it was always on TBS, and they would never give yeah. me any other Christmas movie. They overplayed it. Yeah, yeah they did. Um, my favorite is actually uh, Christmas Vacation. Um, something about it is just, I can watch it every single yeah, year. It one. never gets old. It's just Chevy Chase classic. I watch it Yeah. Completely honest with you. I literally watch that in the summertime. It's such a great it's movie. It's so <laughs> Do you give out Jelly of the Month Club uh, for your employees? <laughs> Trying to retain them. It's not good for employee retention. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Uh, there's just too many classic lines in that movie that I'm going to go on a rant, and I'm not going to start now. Um, you know, for instance, the shitter was full. Um, but anyways, yeah, I, I went there. I did. We were, we were talking about toilet paper. So anyways. Shitter. <laughs> um so anyways uh gary juan we we really really appreciate you guys coming on the show and and spending the time with us and, and diving deep into your thoughts and and backgrounds and uh really appreciate what you both do and uh you know being in the same industry it's uh it's a proud thing to to be a part of and really thank you guys for being a part of the privacy please community as well and <clears throat> hopefully we can have you guys back on for season three next year yeah, thank you so Great. much for the work you do. It's um, it's amazing work. Thank you, Gabe. Thank thanks. you, Cam. Thanks. We, we'll Cameron, give you a prize. Gabe, thanks. We really appreciate being a part of this. Thank you. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, thanks, guys. Appreciate all you do. Absolutely. You guys take care and uh, right. have a have a wonderful evening. Cheers, cheers. Thanks. Have a great holiday. Oh wait, guys. oh Bye-bye. before uh, I'm sign off, I'll be the great words oh, yeah. of uh, of uh, Ted Lasso, which is be curious, not judgmental. So enjoy that. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I just wanted to thank all of you out there for tuning in each and every week and to all of our amazing guests for coming on. I I know that there are millions of other shows and it means the world to have you with us on this journey. We are so grateful that you choose to listen to us each and every week. If you like the show, tell a friend, have them tell their friends, and then maybe make some new friends along the way uh, so we can continue to spread the word and keep learning together. Let's protect what matters most. By the way, DJ, go ahead and drop that outro. Keep it classy. We'll see y'all next week.